This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Aware presence teaches us to see the way things are, a consequence of myriad causes and conditions, and from that place, go out and make a difference. Valeria Tellez interviews Stephen Folder, the author of What's Beyond Mindfulness, Waking Up to This Precious Life. Stephen Folder was born in 1946 in London. He was closely involved in the 1960s culture and has a PhD in medical research and 14 books published in the field of complementary medicine. He has been practicing largely within the Theravada Buddhist framework since 1976, together with long-term inspiration from Dogchen and Advaita teachings. Stephen has been teaching intensively for 25 years, mostly in Israel, at least 15 retreats a year, plus annual courses and classes, as well as guiding the Israeli Dharma teachers and instructors. He is the founder and senior teacher of the Israel Insight Society, which is the major Buddhist practice organization in the country, running some 45 retreats annually and many courses, plus programs in the prisons, schools, etc., and peacemaking activities. Stephen's previous Dharma book, What's Beyond Mindfulness?, explores the way the practical teachings of the Dharma can help us deeply with ordinary daily life situations and yet take us all the way to awakening. It was 18 weeks the number one bestseller in the category of instructional books in Israel. Stephen has a new book to be published by Octopus Press in the UK, The Five Powers. Meet Stephen at stephenfolder.com. Here is the interview with Stephen Folder. In your own words, who is Stephen Folder? Um, it's really hard to say. <laughs> uh, I feel a human being, a person with a history and a biography. And at the same time, I feel part of the universe and a great impersonal being that is connected to everything else and, and made by everything else. And I dance between the two, the limited person called Stephen Fulder that we can call Stephen Fulder, which is a bit mm-hmm. of a convenient, it's a bit of a convenient yeah. fi- fiction, actually. True. And the big picture, which really is beyond what I would describe as a person called Stephen Fulder. And between the two, my life flows and dances. Before I ask you questions about your book, some of the topics in your book, what is beyond mindfulness, waking up to this precious life, and also the power of trust, among other thoughts, because I'm sure I'll be asking you more questions. I have this 
open questions I call warm-up inquiries. And the first one is, I guess you already answered part of this question, but perhaps not. What does it mean to be a human being, to be in a human body? Yeah, I, I think, um, first of all, our small mind can't really answer that question. Uh, we really need to, in a way, jump to another consciousness to be able to even approach that question, because it's a total mystery. But um, I do feel that, uh, at least in my own experience, I am born into a body and even given this shape as a meaningful act, and that this meaning is, in a way, it's going back to school. It's, I am born into this body in order to learn how this life can be lived, how I can help humanity, how I can uh, develop qualities and then donate those qualities out into the world. So for me, it's an experiment, this uh, being born into a body uh, and a mystery, and I can only touch it kind of without concepts, with a certain deep intuition and love. So being a human body is somewhat an experiment. So I'm wondering who chose to experience or to do this experiment? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's the, maybe I'm going into a kind of uh, funny language here, but I think it's the playfulness of mm. existence. Mm. I think existence is fundamentally creative and playful, and it plays with us. It plays by giving birth to beings, and beings then play as the best they, they can. <laughs> I don't have a, um, a concept. I would say I'm a Buddhist, and my practice is Buddhist, and from the Buddhist teaching, I don't go along with a creator as an entity of any kind. That to me seems like just from what I learned from my childhood, but not with the wisdom. The wisdom would say, however, that the whole vast unity of things is fundamentally playful and creates, and it does it by itself. And I feel okay with that. So would you say that that relates to trust? There's wisdom that you speak of, this knowing. Uh, yes, I do. It's a very big subject, as you as you said. But let's go down to uh, the kind of daily life experiences that um, many of your listeners here are going to be experiencing every day. And it really is a question: How do we get up in the morning? What do we, with what eyes and with what heart, do we look at the life? that we meet when we get up in the morning. It's much more of that kind. That's my interest, actually. And um, as a teacher, as a spiritual teacher, uh, I really try and help people to shift the view of the way they are with life. It's true that in the big picture, shall we say the ultimate picture, our sense of unity is really helpful to, for us to trust to have a place to lean on, to rest on. However, in the small view of how I am with life, we can also do it there. And I don't want to get into a situation where we feel very, very anxious or worried because of the virus and because of problems and because of politics and because of ecology and environment and so on. Uh, but we, the only thing that supports us is somehow a refuge in some concept of above. 
and I feel we ought to, we need to experience it right now in our daily life. That's where we experience trust because if we don't, we're going to instead be dominated by anxiety, by fear, by worry, by concern, and by helplessness. And it's there that I think we need, we really, really need to learn uh, the nature of trust and how to develop it. This is what your work is about, mindfulness, meditation, and getting to know ourselves. What's the relationship between self-knowledge, self-awareness, and mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness? Yeah, mindfulness is um, fundamental as a spiritual teaching. And to be honest, it's not just Buddhist. Um, it's really, I, I'm interested, uh, my wife is very deeply involved in uh, Jewish mythology and spirituality uh, and mysticism. And it's right there. Um, without seeing you, your life and the universe around you, uh, you'll just be lost anyway, <laughs> wherever, whichever path you choose. So the seeing is freeing us. And mindfulness is basically seeing how we are in every moment, how we meet our life, what is our deepest sources, where do we find our deepest powers and potentials, where are we finding our blocks and our um, obstacles, and how are they and how we can work with them. So mindfulness is a very big, a very big, you could call it an, an awake relationship with the experiences of our uh, ordinary life, to experience from a place of being awake, alert, clear, and insightful. Do you find this deepest spiritual support, let's say, the, this deepest knowing and, and sense of trust in everything? Yeah, it's a nice question. I find it, in, in a way, coming back to the source. And coming back to the source is an active... Uh, directing our inner view. What do I mean by that? If we, keep, if we stop, just imagine, we stop in the middle of our life, in the middle of our day, we stop, see where we really are, see what drives our experience at this moment, appreciate this experience, feel love for ourselves and the world. That moment, we discover a truth about the world, which is that the world is not against us. The world is with us, but we learn it in a way from touching our real, genuine experience. That means, for example, very, very simply, this breath, this life force flowing through the body, this awareness that knows, that knows I exist. Meeting those basic, basic elements of our life will bring us a sense of inner truth and inner steadiness from which we can look at all the difficulties out there. I have a small example, actually, that I'll, I'll just relate. <laughs> and you talked about flexibility earlier on, being free with uh, changing circumstances. Um, I was in the States a year ago doing a tour of uh, uh, spiritual Dharma centers, Buddhist centers, and giving talks and evenings and, and one-day workshops. And I was in California. And every day I needed to drive along Route 101 in order to go to another center in the Bay Area and in California. And, uh, you know, Route 101 is so industrial and so ugly in a way. There's so much, is so much 
dirt and, and ugly buildings and millions of people in cars driving along. And I found myself really av- aversive to the experience. I was able, because of a kind of practice of awareness, to instantly shift the view and say, wait, that view isn't helpful. It's just negative. And when I did that, it took one second. I suddenly saw all the other cars with their people inside. I felt the compassion to people who only who live this way. They can, they're doing the best they can. They're all trying to live well. And I suddenly, my heart opened to everybody and it took just a microsecond And so I think this is one of the gifts of awareness or mindfulness that leads you to a shift in the view. But I have to say something important here, that mindfulness is only one of a group or a basket of, shall we say, spiritual practices. My new book is called The Five Powers. And this new book does relate to other powers in addition to mindfulness. So mindfulness is one of the five powers, but the first one is trust. Uh, The second one is energy, motivation, determination, um, life force. As I say, the third is mindfulness. The fourth is calm, steadiness, and the power to stop, and the power to settle and be steady. And the fifth one is wisdom and awakening. So these are in addition to, in a way, beyond mindfulness. And what's interesting for me is mindfulness is the gate, but we can go through the gate into the garden. And when we're in the garden, we will see many other powers and potentials that we can work with and that we can realize that are, in a way, the next step beyond mindfulness. Trust is key to that. Trust is one of the most important qualities we need in addition to mindfulness in these difficult times today. I love the way you mentioned the view, just so what comes to mind is, so it's not about the view, but that which views the view. (laughs) What a fantastic experience, isn't it? To be even talking about these subjects. (laughs) It is. It's beautiful. And I I love your questions. They're right to the point. They go right to where we really need this kind of dialogue. All of us need these kind of dialogues in our life from our, we need to, one place of trust, by the way, is if we do have around us a community or others who are like-minded and who can support the view that you're expressing is subtle. The view that I'm expressing is often subtle and is often drowned by the ordinary, you can call it the tsunami mm-hmm. of busyness, of busyness and concern and worry and politics. We get drowned so easily. And so it's very important what you're doing and, and what I'm doing and, and others who are listening, that they do find like-minded people who can support a more subtle way of looking at reality, the view you're talking about. It needs support. The trust in other people, other human beings, for some reason, it seems like it's one of the most challenging things to do. So I'm wondering what the message is when we display distrust in others. What does it say about our own inner world, you know, our inner trust? Um, so I've got a little story I want mm-hmm. to tell you. It's, it's a traditional story. Two people are wandering in the marketplace. Uh, friends, 
and one of them gets hit by a stick and he starts to shout at the stick. And his friend said, you can't shout at the stick. Shout at, that's no point. Shout at the hand that's holding the stick. He said, oh, okay, okay. So he shouted at the hand. And his friend said, well, don't shout at the hand because there's somebody who's holding somebody's hand. So shout at the person, not the hand. He said, oh, yes, of course. You're right, you're right. He started to shout at the person. And his friend said, wait a minute. You don't know this person that hit you. Maybe he's had a really hard time. Maybe he hasn't eaten for three days. Maybe he's suffering in ways you don't know. So shout at the conditions that made him hit you. So his friend started to shout and then he said, wait a minute, I can't shout at the conditions because the whole universe is the conditions mm. and I can't shout at the universe. Why I'm saying this, it is no doubt that it's painful that we do have conflicts in our home, with our families, with our workplace, certainly in the social realm, the, the, the world has never been as divided um, I'm English, but, you know, I live in Israel, the Israeli situation, the American situation, the British situation, full of conflict. And I'm, um, I'm working with that. And one of the places to work with that is to begin to see and listen to the other person and understand the conditions that made the other person argue or fight or shout or be aggressive and to really understand where that person's coming from. And in a way, you can trust people more if you are, shall we say, close to them, listening to them, aware of them. And it's instead of your automatic defensiveness, reactivity and aggression also, and the sense of shutting down behind your own wall and saying, I don't believe this. You're wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work. And what trust really, really works steadiness really trust and steadiness by the way go very well together if you stay with your truth like i was talking before you stand your ground you feel your body and your energy you feel what the other person is doing to you you don't need to react immediately you sense what's behind the eyes of the other person you feel your togetherness even if you've got different views right now there is togetherness and it will allow you it will allow you to come from another place to relate to this person. You may not be able to solve all the problems. You may not. You may not want to answer anything. You may not want to shout. You may just want to smile or you may want to give a hug. But the whole thing will be different if you see it with your heart, your heart mind, uh, you see and you trust the situation. It is as it is. I am with it. That is the fundamental act of trust. It is as it is. I am with it, not against. Somebody said, and I thought it was just incredibly wise, a judgment of any kind is to claim that you know the mysteries, all the mysteries of the entire universe, of life itself, of everything. It's a practice. So I guess no one can really say that we don't have any moment of doubt, of judgment and negativity and all. So what do you do or what do you recommend we do when that arises? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's um, really, you know, down to earth. And you're right that we, knew we need to develop trust. I, I tell you, by the way, in brackets, we are born with trust. 
The baby is born. How beautiful the silence when a mother is feeding a baby at the breast and the baby is taking the milk and the mother is giving and the two are connected with total trust and uh, connection and quiet. And the baby knows trust. We do have it in us in a primal way, but we also have primal fear. And fear is triggered very, very easily, very quickly. So some of the ways I think that we can develop trust, um, firstly, in a way like my story when I was traveling on Route 101, keep turning towards what we can't control and what is difficult for us, but we turn towards it and be with it, even if it's difficult, rather than shutting it down or escaping into screens and into our mobile phones and into uh, addictions, uh, we turn towards what we cannot control. Keep doing that shift, and we gradually are there more and more in our life. And on the other side, we need to take responsibility for those visitors like anxiety and fear and uh, concerns that we have that actually uh, can undo our trust, we need to actually look at them and work with them. Not blame ourselves for being anxious. Not to blame ourselves if we feel stress and we feel out of, out of ourselves and we feel helpless or we feel angry. We don't blame ourselves because that's another layer. But what we can do, and, and the Buddhist teaching is really, really experienced with two and a half thousand years of deep practices at, on these aspects, we can learn to allow the anxiety, to watch it as it arises, to see how it's developing in our body and in our heart and in our mind, and to let it go, to see that it comes and it goes by itself. They are visitors. And even you could say they are teachers because if anxiety comes as a visitor knocking at the door and says, I'm here, what are you going to do? Our response can be, I see you, it's not pleasant, but nevertheless, you knock at the door and then you, you come in and then you go. And everything passes by. And if we understand that, we have a different attitude to these uh, reactions that we have like, anxiety or lack of trust. So it's really working, encouraging trust, but also knowing that the opposite of trust isn't really solid. It isn't really uh, totally in control of us. And I would say um, one or two more uh, guidelines to develop trust. Meditation is really helpful. We don't need to call it meditation, but sense of deeply looking in ourselves that everybody can do, quiet, settling in themselves, and then allowing things to be the way they are. If we ask how to heal ourselves, if we have a sickness, how do we heal ourselves? We have to trust the body. And if you trust the body, the healing happens more easily. So in meditation, we turn towards our experience. We turn towards the mind. We turn towards the body. And when we do that, that turning towards is already an act of trust because it's instead of fighting or instead of running away or instead of shutting it down. Instead of that, we turn towards our life 
And that already has trust in it to meet our life as it is. And so meditation is important uh, for us as well. And final point is you mentioned it uh, just very quickly. We may not have so much time, but we can stay with a sense of um, not knowing, of not having all the answers, but the sense, the capacity that we have to let go into what we do not know and we do not control, and in a way let go into the ultimate or something far, far bigger than we can conceive, something limitless. And there's a lot of practice in the Buddhist world about this. Um, and it also, you know, I'm coming, as I say, also from the Jewish uh, mystical world, where even in the Psalms, it's written, take shelter under the wings of the goddess. And it's so beautiful to kind of, that's such a beautiful phrase, but it gives us a sense of, it's a real practical thing we can do to feel refuge, to feel coming home into the big picture. I have a question for you about not blaming ourselves when we are going through anxiety, fear, whatever it is that arises. So I call this the practice of self-love or the love for the self. Would you say this is uh, an important practice initially? Yes, I think it is. I think it's uh, fundamental. And um, But I think one problem that we have is that love seems very big. And if we're struggling and we're anxious and someone can be you or me <laughs> says, says just love, uh, people can feel, well, I can't do that. It's all too difficult. It's just a word. It's too big for me. How do I change my inner uh, atmosphere, the, the thoughts I have, which are so problematic? How do I suddenly change that to love? Do I need to wave a magic wand? And my answer is, wait a minute, I think that what we need is to redefine love in ways that are much easier to approach. And this is, for example, uh, in my book, The Five Powers and What's Beyond Mindfulness. I talk a lot about this. If we redefine love as our ability to be intimate with ourselves, for example, or the ability to appreciate ourselves as a precious human being, or the ability to go towards what hurts us and say, yes, I am with you, like a mother going to a crying child. The mother doesn't say to the crying child, or I hope the mother doesn't just say, I'm not listening, go away. The, the, the child needs a hug, and it's very basic and deep in our our, our instincts. And all of that is love, but it's easier to approach. So in my teaching, in my books, in my writing, I do try and give easier ways of reconnecting with ourselves, which is certainly love, but it doesn't feel beyond. It feels rather doable. Just connecting with where we are, simply connecting with our being, our breath, our body, our mind. That's already love. And speaking of love, what is love to you, Stephen? Um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful question. To me, it's kind of the glue that holds the whole universe together. 
it's the gravity that holds everything. It's the connection that we have to each other uh, before we forgot that we're separate. Uh, we forgot that we're connected and we feel separate. It's before that, it's under that. It's our sense of unity uh, with everything, with others, with ourselves. And so it's a very, very deep and very total. That's the way I see love. It, it does seem like um, very big language. And I appreciate, you know, that that language is big language, but I have no other language that really gives it its its full power. I would say on the level of you or me or people listening, um, we don't need the big language so much. What we need is to feel our, to restore and remember our connectedness with everything, with the trees outside, with our bodies, with the grass that we walk on, with other human beings, with the birds in the air, and that's already love. But if you ask me what is love, I can only come from I can only come from <laughs> this very big big place uh, of unity, and and yeah. it's behind and under everything. It holds everything together. Without love, nothing will exist. The mm. whole of life could not exist. What is freedom to you? What is to be free? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. When you ask what actually, let's ask the opposite for a minute. Uh, what is it to feel imprisoned and not free? And it's this place of being contracted and locked in to the conditions of life when everything just seems such a struggle and a fight to survive and to cope. And so in that place, we feel that all our life is a kind of a prison. We are locked into the conditions of life. And all we can do is, is sit in our prison cell and kind of rearrange the furniture. <laughs> and free, freedom is opening the door to our prison cell and seeing the big wide world out there and feeling that we can dance with any conditions that life throws at us. The sense that we can dance with uncontrollable life and that we are able to be much bigger people, that we're not locked in any kind of sense of automatic pilot and just struggling with my life and the conditions of life. It's the power to dance. Chesterton, American author of 100 years ago, said... Um, why do angels fly? Uh, because they take themselves so lightly, mm -hmm. which is a beautiful quote. And yes. <laughs> uh, we, we, we can be angels. Being free is like being an angel. We take things lightly. We dance with circumstances. We, we feel uh, that we are dancing and uh, we're never imprisoned. Um, life is a huge ocean, really, in which we're swimming freely. Uh, so it's the sense of that freedom, the sense of potential that we have. It's, this, it's a sense of uh, unlimited, being un, in unlimited place. I had a conversation last week. I talked to a lot of people, they are mystics, spiritual teachers, and life coaches, so many different backgrounds and experiences. Yes. I remember having a conversation about diet 
like being a vegetarian, like not eating the animals. And I think the word came up, the being light. So we want to raise our vibrations. So by not killing the animals, eating them, that's part of the spiritual evolution. So, yeah, I guess my question for you is, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. I'll just tell you a small story that <laughs> I became a vegetarian in 1975 on my first one-year visit to India. So I was staying, I was actually teaching in an Indian university in Varanasi, in Banaras Hindu University. And uh, I was living in Varanasi, which is a holy city in India. And I suddenly understood the concept, which is really important in Indian uh, philosophy and Indian life, of sattva. And the concept of sattva, you can translate it as harmony, peace, non-violence, and subtlety. And what they told me was, this is not just a spiritual experience, sattva, this is the way you live. And if you eat vegetarian food, then the energy, exactly what you say, the energy of your being will be lighter, harmonious, uh, and non, non-violent and peaceful. And so it's that that convinced me to, to go vegetarian, and I've been ever since 1975 till today uh, vegetarian. And so it started from that place. Then, of course, I added to it uh, the when I realized how much suffering uh, and and destruction happens uh, through meat eating, and then it just sort of confirmed that. I have chickens uh, up in my little farm here mm-hmm. in the Galilee, and people say, well, I suppose you have the eggs and then you eat the chickens. I said, I said to them, tell me something, tell me something. Uh, would you eat your friends? Mm, <laughs> Do you eat your friends? I think it's on two levels. I think it's it, you're right that it's on the level of uh, energetic level, the vibration level to live in harmony, inner harmony, and it, at, at the frequency, the energy in us gets lighter and more subtle. And at the same time, we need to be really careful what we do to the world and how we look after the world. And the two together means really we shouldn't be eating any meat. I do eat meat. I eat um, salmon, wild salmon, and sometimes the tuna fish too. Just fish, basically. The reason why I was a vegetarian for almost five years, because of being kind and uh, killing anything and not causing any harm. And then I realized that I was not being true to myself because I would speak in such a way. I, I was very preachy trying to get other people to change their diets too and try to convince them to be like me and at the same time I was also craving when I would see other people eating I, I felt like the body mm-hmm. salivating I'm like wait a minute there's something that doesn't resonate it's not true mm, yes so I, I understand had, that you do Stephen so I had to go back to it would you say that this is something within us perhaps I need more work I don't know energy work some sort of work to liberate those cravings I'm just wondering if there's nothing wrong, right or wrong. You're right. It's not a question of right or wrong. It's a question of how you want to live, uh, how you feel you can contribute most. And um, I would say living harmoniously. And so I I don't judge. I don't think there's right or wrong here. 
Um, I think it's, you know, if someone says, I've really worked, I've really worked on it, and I decided that I really need to eat fish once a week, or I don't know what, I'm not judging anybody. They make their decision. Maybe this person, uh, for example, the Dalai Lama used to eat meat, and maybe he still does, I don't know. But you can you say that the Dalai Lama is kind of uh, not aware of moral sensitivity and he's devoting his life to helping and to supporting and to teaching. So you can't judge. It's very difficult to judge. The Buddha, by the way, wasn't a vegetarian because he had another approach, which was uh, the Buddha's approach to this was uh, we eat whatever is thrown out, whatever other people don't want, that's good enough. So I do have a bit of a problem with the word you use, craving. Mm, I think that's right. that's not a, uh, to be honest right. with you, it's not terribly helpful. Mm. Um, I think that the craving, you can deal with it uh, wisely in the kind of ways right. that we talked about before, by watching it, by being aware of it, by seeing that it's just a visitor that comes and goes. Um, but if it is a, a deep sense, I need to do this. This is right in my life to mm. eat fish now and then. That's not that's not a problem. You're giving your life to something else. Mm. You can't do everything, and you can't be everywhere, and you can't be perfect, and you can't. You know, it's right. fine. It's just the craving that maybe you can work with. Yeah. No, I understand. That makes a lot of sense to me too, because why am I eating salmon? Yeah, once a week. Nothing really arises that is making me feel, let's say, guilt or neg- no negativity. There's nothing that's negative about it. So, and I think that's the reason why I continue because I don't, I don't sense anything, no impediments yeah, in my being. I think that's right. I think that that's fine. And I, I don't have a problem with that. And uh, I think it's, like I said, if there's a wisdom that says, this is the way I want to live, who is going to judge? Uh, you, you're, you're, there's so much goodness in what you're doing. There's so much goodness in what the Dalai Lama does. And I hope there's so much goodness in what Stephen Fulder does. Yeah. And so yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. So we do this. We live like this. Anyway, by the way, I have to say that every human being, just by living, being born and living on this planet, we are doing damage. We can't avoid it. We are hurting this planet just by living on it. The best thing that the planet would like for us is to disappear. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very profound statement. Um, so in a way, it's not coming back here if there is such a thing as reincarnation and life-mind continuation. I have to ask you the question, <laughs> what's the path to this kind of evolution of not coming back in the human body? Well, I, th- I think it's uh, it's awakening. It's when the uh, consciousness, the awareness is so refined and purified that it no longer is tied to creating more karma, more selfing, more structures of thought, more constructions in the mind. When there's something that is absorbed into the universe, that is released into the universe. You know, the word nirvana, and other people may have said this in interviews with you before, but the word nirvana, one of the translations of it is 
putting out the fire. And there's a sense that that we don't need to be burning, burning with human desires and needs and constructions, but we put out the fire. And what happens when you put out a fire? It goes back to where it came from, which is going back into the universe again. And so there's something there which is like we go back to where we came from and we put out the fires of human desire and need and we go back to where we came from. And in that place, you could say there's no need to be reborn again. We're just being reabsorbed into the, into the universe again. And that's, that's it. That's done. A very wonderful way of understanding this life might be the, what you call dance. You also mentioned balance. It might be coming to that understanding that there's nothing to be actually attached to or not attached to. So you are in between everything. And that might be the space of freedom. Uh, that's, uh, that's beautifully said. You're, you're right. It's beautifully said. It's only the attachments that keep us tied in to ordinary life and also tied in to rebirth. And in a way, we are reborn because we're attached, because we want to be, we need to be born again. We keep, uh, we keep coming back. It, the key, non-attachment is the key. It's, it's the um, second of the four noble truths of Buddhism, that we suffer because we're attached. And the third noble truth is awakening, which is basically non-attachment, to let go, to drop what it is that is imprisoning us, and to see, and to see that we, in a way, were already free, mm. but we forgot it. We forgot <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, even the idea of non-attachment might be another uh, attachment. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It's yeah. Often people busy with non-attachment, and actually, yeah. they're so busy. It's it's busyness with right. With that's it. another subtle form of attachment. Yeah. Of, so that's some wow, Stephen. What a wonderful experience. I keep going back to that um, feeling of just amazement. Almost at the end, I have a few more questions for you. But before I ask them, would you like to add anything or read a passage from one of your books? Maybe yes, uh, but I, I'll be look. I'll look for it uh, here. I didn't actually come with a, a passage, but I think I can find it pretty quickly. But there is something I would like to uh, just suggest. Um, both of my books, the Five Powers and What's Beyond Mindfulness, uh, are published and printed in the UK and are, of course, available on Amazon or Book Depository. You just look up Stephen Fulder uh, or The Five Powers or What's Beyond Mindfulness. We'll be interested, certainly, in an American publisher uh, who would like to publish these books. So if if anyone can help with that, that would be wonderful. But they are available on Amazon, so anyone interested, welcome to get hold of them there leave a review. I'm looking forward, after the, all the lockdowns and the difficulties of traveling, uh, I'm looking forward to another tour of the States um, to go around and, and talk about these things. Wonderful. Oh, yeah. Let me ask you about uh, online sessions. Or do you teach online? I do, yes. Yes. I teach online all the time, nearly every day. But they're basically, most of it is in English, uh, but very often the websites and so on are websites out here in Israel. If you look up my web page, 
uh, my website, stephenfulder.com, then anything that's right for any uh, for overseas uh, will be there. And also the classes I teach in, in Israel, are all almost all of them are in English. And so they can also, you can also just join. It's really, they're really open. Um, so I'd like to read a little piece from my book if I can. Absolutely. Yes, Stephen. Yes. Okay. I live alongside lots of olive trees, which have an amazingly expressive character that clearly shows everything that has happened to them. If a branch has been cut or if the tree reaches out in a certain direction, then you can see it. The shaping of the tree is its memory, a response to conditions. And the tree doesn't have a problem with that. And there is no reason why we should have a problem either. We are just shaped, constructed by life. We are given a body and it develops and changes dynamically according to conditions. And we arrive in each moment as we are and the world arises and meets us as it is. And all we need to do is to appreciate it and let it be. Stories are just stories and embodiment is just embodiment. If we let go into this flow of life, the wounds will dissolve, the scars will be softened and brought back to life, and we will find ourselves in the garden of the now instead of the prison of yesterdays. A difficult experience can come up, just like an unpleasant visitor arriving in our house. We can cry, and the next minute we can laugh, and then he's gone. That's beautiful. If you knew you would die soon, meaning lose the body, would you change anything or do anything differently? Um, I would probably be slightly less busy, <laughs> if you, to be honest. <laughs> I would probably um, say, okay, I don't need to do any more Zoom teachings. I don't, need to, <laughs> I don't even need to do this one with you, <laughs> in other words, <laughs> right, right. Um, I would probably be less busy and I would just sit myself down like I know so well to do and go drop deeply into silence and there's nothing else that needs to be done. Uh, that's, that would be um, my sense. And um, it, just leave me alone <laughs> and let me just... <laughs> sit under this tree and just drop into silence and I'm ready. Uh, that would be, that would be my, I, of course, I don't know what will happen um, when, when it happens, but um, that would be now my answer and my intention. And my last question is, what are three things about life you know for sure as of now? Well, that's a kind of uh, big one. <laughs> um, how do I choose from one million? <laughs> but um, uh, first of all, it's unlimited. Secondly, it's fundamentally unknowable or a mystery, mysterious, uh, beyond the mind to really grasp it. And uh, uh, thirdly, that it's endless flow. Nothing is fixed. Nothing, no, nothing in life is um, solid or fixed or structured. It's just 
a, a beautiful, endless flow, dynamic, free, and uh, unlimited. So I think those three things would probably be, uh, like I say, the unlimited, the un, the mystery, the mystery, mystery of it, because we really can't grasp. We are made from life, so how can we grasp what <laughs> made us, makes us? So, so we can't grasp it. Uh, we can just let go into it. We can surrender into it. And the third is that um, it's just vast flow of. Um, of moving, flowing, changing, and that gives it its life feeling or the dynamic feeling of life. Thank you so much for your peaceful presence and um, your mission, your profound message, and your commitment to love with capital L. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much. And I really enjoyed, I must say, I really enjoyed uh, talking together and enjoyed your questions. They go right to the heart of things. And I really appreciate the depth uh, with which you, from your, I think your personal experience, uh, bring bring this this di- bring to this dialogue together. So uh, I really appreciate where you're coming from. Where can we find more information about you, your work, your books, products, services, and future projects? I think the best thing would be to look up my website, uh, stephenfulder.com. It's uh, Stephen Fulder spelt with P-H, Stephen Fulder, one word. Um, I think pretty well everything would be there. And but at the same time, I really would invite people to look at Amazon or whatever t- in order to uh, check up on the t- two books, uh, relatively new books, both of them, uh, What's Beyond Mindfulness and The Five Powers. So that, that's, that's enough for the time being. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Okay, great, wonderful. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Stephen Folder and his work, please visit stephenfolder.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Bye.